This is the Sarah Swain Show, where we talk all things bold and courageous business and have big and free conversations with brave humans. Nothing is off the table here, so get ready to be moved, challenged, empowered, and propelled into action. Welcome, everyone, to the Sarah Swain Show. This is a uh, different kind of podcast we're doing today. I've got myself a doctor and a lawyer today. So I'm going to hand it over to uh, these two fine individuals who are doing really, really important work right now coming from Ontario. Uh, we're going to be diving into some pretty serious discussions today around our healthcare system, uh, around some of the concerns that we have for uh, the way in which the system's currently being run, who's actually benefiting from it. Um, what the risk is to both doctors and patients alike, and uh, what we can do about it as concerned citizens. So, uh, Crystal, we'll start with you. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you very much for having us on. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, my name's Crystal Lechku. I'm a family physician, and I'm also a palliative care physician. And I practice out of Barrie, Ontario, which is um, my hometown. And by and large, um, throughout the pandemic, I have tried very hard to maintain my degree of compassion and quality of care delivery, um, my ethics and my morals um, when dealing with patients. And I used to work in our local hospital as well, providing end of life and palliative care to patients there as well as in our hospice. Um, and there was, there's been a big shift in the way that um, our approach to care is acceptable these days. And um, I've seen an awful lot of very challenging circumstances that patients have been put into, a lot of suffering that uh, I feel should never have happened and is not justified. Um, and so it's led me uh, to... Unfortunately, some legal troubles and a suspension of my medical license, actually. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that would be why your lawyer is also joining us on the call today. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, sure, Sarah. Uh, I'm Michael Alexander. I'm uh, <clears throat> a constitutional lawyer uh, with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, uh, which is based in Calgary, uh, although I, have a, a, a I hold down the Toronto office. And I, uh, I'm defending Crystal on this matter uh, on both uh, the uh, charter grounds, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but also more basic legal principles, such as when a body can lawfully exercise its jurisdiction and its authority over a doctor and uh, over patients. Uh, and so uh, we will be heading into the court system soon to try to get uh, Crystal's uh, suspension order uh, itself suspended. Uh, by the courts until we can have this matter heard by the divisional court in Ontario, at which time we will raise the argument that everything that has been done to Crystal and her patients is unlawful uh, under the charter. And as I say, in relation to more basic legal principles. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you do. I was mentioning just before we started recording here that I'm very pleased with how many of uh, cases just like this are, are starting to hit the court systems. Cause I think there was a lot of concern from, uh, Canadians as to what are we doing about these frightening things that we're observing, uh, particularly in our healthcare system. So um, back to you, uh, Dr. Crystal, when it, when it came to the 
position you found yourself in to all of a sudden be uh, having to decide what is, uh, I would imagine, right and moral and ethical uh, and within your own integrity, both as uh, a human being, a, a regular person, but also as a medical professional. Uh, what was that period of time like for you? Was there one particular thing that made your, uh, you know, this big light bulb go off saying we got a big problem here? Or was it kind of a series of events that led you to finding some worry in how uh, the pandemic was being managed by our healthcare system? That's a really great question. Um, and to be honest, it really, um, it, it's kind of both. So right at the very beginning, you know, hearing about this new virus, you know, trying to keep my eye on it and lots of considerations there. But as soon as the notice or the announcement of a lockdown and locking down young, healthy people, um, shutting down businesses and, you know, the, the implications that come from those measures when they've never been done before and there's really been no risk benefit analysis provided there's no real objectivity and balanced reasoning um it was very biased and you know based on principles that came from china of all places mm -hmm. um it seemed really egregious but of course the sound of you know two weeks to flatten the curve um kind of got everybody and the fear kind of caught everybody as well. Um, but those, those concerns didn't ever let up for me. And I started seeing signs very early on with my patients in terms of the isolation and being cut off from their social activities and their family and their friends, you know, basic needs of human life and, and, the human condition are human contact and human connection. And we know from many years of study and research on elderly people, which is predominantly what my practice involves, um, that isolation harms and kills particularly elderly people. So I, I had a really significant patient who had lost a lot of weight very quickly because he lost access to his wife um, and and the interaction there and just the response to him and his suffering um, was really too much for me to handle. We started losing empathy and compassion very early on and I started seeing changes in behaviors of healthcare workers and colleagues and um, you know, long-term care approaches to caring for these people. Um, and, and it was really affecting me. So I kept focused on trying to remain objective and researching, you know, the risk of the virus and the risk of these other collateral um, impacts on human beings and human lives. And you know, when I started putting the pieces of the puzzle together and looking at how we very easily could have had a targeted approach for the most at-risk groups of people um, instead of, you know, a broad sweeping 
approach to all human beings and not really even entertaining how that affected everyone else. Um, I just, I kept going with what my intuition and my, my morals and ethics were guiding me towards, which was to stay focused on treating human beings with dignity and respect in all moments of time as best that I can. And so along the way, I, I discovered some research on things like obesity and how the risk was really highly increased in uh, patients that were obese. And I started you know, discussing that with my patients and encouraging healthy lifestyle and weight loss even more than I was before. I looked at research that involved vitamin D. You know, it's certainly um, not a harmful treatment option, and it did have some reasonable evidence in the beginning, and even more so robust evidence now for its effectiveness. Um, and I actually started testing my patients' vitamin D levels and encouraging them. So I kind of developed my own little um, approach to it and started developing my own discussions with patients. And of course, you know, when measures started changing like masks and further lockdowns and closing my office versus keeping it open, which I, you know, I actually tended to stay open. Uh, and I had no cases of COVID through my office. I respected everyone in, in their goals of care and how they perceived any of these measures and if they were harmful to them. Um, you know, I was ridiculed for that. And I, this is where a lot of the complaints came from. But I think there's big lessons in all of that. So I just, I kept doing what I knew to be right and, and true. And I joined some uh, really excellent groups of physicians that have kind of collaborated all across the country in different um, weekly meetings and different educational seminars. And it's really been uh, quite amazing, uh, but also probably the biggest challenge that I've ever been through in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I so hear I hear people describe it that way too. I mean, whether you're you're in this fight from a medical standpoint or any other kind of system standpoint, it's it's been the hardest and most challenging thing, but also the most beautiful and rewarding thing at the same time. So it's this interesting duality that we're all toggling back yeah. and forth to and from. But so your experience that you've described up until this point, there's nothing in there that sounds radical to me. There's, there's nothing in there that makes me think, Ooh, we better keep an eye on this doctor because she's putting our patients at risk. Um, yeah. what, what was your general feeling inside when you started getting pushback for it's by what sounds like you genuinely having your patients best interest at the forefront of, of your practice, yeah. What what was your um, experience like when you started getting complaints about that? So it started actually about uh, May, uh, well, probably January of 2021. So it's been over a year um, since kind of the first complaints started. And I've never had a complaint into the college about me and my practice or my communication or anything prior to this. And so it's very unnerving and, and terrifying in the beginning because we don't as physicians get any kind of um, 
real training or education or understanding on what limits the college has or um, how to approach these things. So it was really quite uh, unsettling in the beginning. Um, But to be honest, uh, at this point, I've grown quite thick skin. Um, And it started by, um, I was spotted, as this sounds silly, but in my community, I was spotted by someone and someone took photos of me at um, a local freedom rally. And I was contacted by the chief of staff at the hospital who wanted to know basically my intentions for being there uh, personally. And so right then and there, it was really obvious to me that instead of whoever saw me or didn't like you know, what I was doing personally, instead of them talking to me one-on-one, right, to try to sort out our conflict or discuss it even openly, uh, they just went right to the authority or the leadership, and then it was being trickled down to me from them. And so there's no real way for any resolution or, um, you know, improvement for that barrier now that's in the relationship. And um, I even brought that up and, and he kind of said, oh, yeah, you're right. We normally would do that, but and just kept going on. And so it's like we're dismissing all of the previous functions of how we would deal with conflict management and leadership. And we're just accepting that this is the new way to do things, even though we know it's not effective or positive or productive. So that was kind of a big moment for me. And I started then really coming into my own kind of trust in myself. And it was just kind of one thing after another. Public health was called on me because my one staff member has a mask exemption. And um, that wasn't acceptable to someone. Public health called the college. The college called me. I dealt with that. Then it went on to a formal complaint. And I dealt with that um, very respectfully at the time. Um, I was able to give my response and evidence to prove my my responses. Um, And that was accepted by the college and I was kind of cleared of any concerns of my infectious disease protocol in my office. That was the first kind of big complaint. But then as I saw some things happening at the hospital in terms of uh, egregious behaviors and actions towards patients or how we would normally do things, I felt very compelled to speak about that and my experiences publicly And I went on um, a podcast with Liberty Coalition and I expressed a couple of my concerns and experiences. And that, of course, got back to the leadership at the hospital. And it was really not respectful any longer. And the whole, you know, privacy issue of your health information and having to submit uh, vaccine status and, you know, the mandatory vaccine policies that the hospital employed were all part of the reason that I actually resigned my privileges at the hospital. I couldn't align myself any longer with that institution. And then that's where the complaint um, happened from the upper administration of my local hospital directly to the president of, or sorry, the CEO of the college. And I was aware only that the that the complaint went in, 
I had no communication whatsoever from the college until they showed up at my office um, on November 29th, trying to, in my mind, unlawfully search and seize anything that they would like. It was beyond threatening and not respectful at all. And so fortunately, I was able to talk to Michael in that time while it was happening. And he greatly assisted me. And since November 29th, we've been back and forth battling. And I'll let Michael explain maybe a little bit about the legal stuff we've been doing. Um, but it, it's been really quite awful. Um, and all the while trying to practice medicine, you know, effectively and raise a family. And so it's, yeah, it's been a real sincere challenge, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. I, I can't even imagine what must have been going through your mind when you are doing quite literally what you're training and education has inspired you to do, which is act in the best interest of your patients to advocate for the people who, who need medical advice, who need medical intervention, who need a medical opinion. And you as a doctor are uh, probably even going an extra mile by uh, not just kind of accepting what public health is saying at face value and saying, well, what else out is out there. What else can we be doing for patients? What else do we need to be considering as far as collateral damage is concerned uh, based on lockdowns or sharing of private medical information? What are the uh, other possible negative side effects of these things that could arguably be worse than the virus that everyone is attempting to get under control? So there you are speaking your truth, looking at research, doing your job, and you're being punished for it. Did it yeah. feel as though, because um, it sounds like the public was doing a lot of the dirty work uh, on behalf of the system for, for at least a while there. Uh, yeah. Why do you think that is? Do you, do you believe that it has a lot to do with the way that the situation has been positioned um, in the media as you mentioned earlier, it it was palpable. Everyone, two weeks, we've got this, we can do this if we all work together. Yeah. And that sent a very subliminal message, didn't it, to people who said, I think that there's probably other ways and things that we need to be considering as being part of the problem. And these are people that are now causing us harm. And it sounds like in the public eye, you fell into that category of you're the type of person that's holding us back. You're the type of person that's causing a danger to our society. And therefore the public started to turn on you based on what they understood from the situation. Yeah. So, um, you know, when, whenever we're um, alarmed and our response to something is fearful, um, a lot of our intrinsic mechanisms like critical thinking shuts down And so the idea that something is so dangerous and so harmful that we must lock down and stay away and stay safe and, you know, don't function at all like we normally would is really challenges somebody's worldview. 
And they usually adopt that very quickly for the, you know, convenience of safety or the idea of safety. And so I think there's a subset of the population that um, really uh, responded to that as a trauma almost. And they, that fear just kept driving their entire perception of everything. And the media was extremely um, complicit in the fear mongering and the messaging. And um, to be honest, a, a doctor and a patient have an exclusive uh, sacrosanct relationship. And there's nobody in between that, you know, other than obviously all of our perceptions and, and experience and bias and things, but we try to park those as much as we can. And so there's actually nobody in between that, that little space. But now the media is in there. Now the college is in there. Now the government is in there. And there's, there's other, you know, pharmaceutical companies are in there. Uh, employers are in there. And that never existed prior to this point in time. And it's not something that we should take lightly because when something like this big happens, um, you know, the likelihood of it going back to where it was before is next to impossible. And so, you know, when I, when I had my, my daughter, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I was given was don't start something that you don't want to continue. And so I carry that with me in all sorts of interactions. So as an example, a patient comes to me with back pain. I don't want to start a patient with back pain on opioid medications because I know that that can lead to, you know, tolerance, addiction, things like that. And so this moment should have also required a pause and a reflection. Do we really want to be doing that? Um, and uh, that has never been done to my knowledge, even mm -hmm. still to date, two years later. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely detrimental and we're destroying the fabric, um, the foundation of where trust uh, begins and yeah. kind of go flows from, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and this is where, because I've got a lot of, a lot of concerns with what's happening in our public health system right now. Uh, with this blanket approach that we have used for society on mass, when mm -hmm. we know that every individual and every individual's body comes with a different set of needs. Um, so to have the, the dialogue be removed from the situation, to have a doctor's autonomy of judgment and opinion and expertise removed from the situation and just kind of blanketed under one public health order yeah. um, to have uh, literally millions of Canadians who chose not to get uh, vaccinated, um, be fearful, become fearful of the healthcare system. And, and to be at a point now where if this was a, a true pandemic of great concern I would like to think that this could have been a really wonderful opportunity to bring everybody together, to garner trust in leadership and, and work with one another 
and hear different conversations and open up dialogue and bring every solution, every tool we have known to us to the table to be able to collectively together find solutions to move us out of it. I would like to believe that that could have been the case, but it seems to be the complete opposite, which has now left the healthcare system in a very precarious situation of, of a huge amount of uh, erosion from uh, mm-hmm. in trust from the uh, standpoint of the general public, whether you're vaccinated or not. I think there's concerns here about how this whole thing was managed. So you started out with being a diligent doctor and, and thinking, wow, okay, we, we may have a pandemic on our hands here. What can I do for my patients? You started looking at information that led to um, some questions and concerns about things that you were doing or looking into. Uh, then you started to uh, operate your practice the way that you thought best in order to be able to serve both your staff and your patients. That then started getting you public complaints. And then you started to get into trouble with the college. And then things escalated at the hospital. You ended up leaving the hospital. And then you had some sort of FBI level search going on in your office. Um, and now we're here with your lawyer having this conversation and, and you've lost your, you've had your license revoked. Yeah. Suspended. What? Suspended. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. why, what was their reason for suspending your license? Because I'm sitting here thinking, I wish I had a doctor like you. Why mm-hmm. on earth would they, would they deem you as being dangerous to your patients or the public? I think I'll let Michael uh, answer that sure. one because it involves a lot of uh, uh, abuse of authority and legal kind of stuff. So, okay, okay, <clears throat> yeah. Well, there there are so many things wrong here. It's hard to know where to start, but I'll, I'll try to get to the, the the key point, which is that <clears throat> that anyone who and, and it was made by the registrar of the college, Doctor Whitmore, uh, a written statement was made that doctors cannot. They, they cannot say anything at any time, contrary to public health policies and recommendations. Or uh, the veiled threat was that they could lose their license, and, and certainly disciplinary action was mentioned as a possibility when the statement was made. Now, there's a real problem with that. What authority does the registrar or even the legal department have to impose this requirement on doctors? And if you look into, uh, because they act under public legislation and they must locate their powers in that legislation or they have no authority. And if you look at what Dr. Whitmore said and what has uh, been posted on the site, uh, the the college refers to a document uh, published by Health Ontario that makes recommendations regarding uh, various kinds of practices. Uh, and, and they have not located their authority in anything except recommendations made by the government, not laws or not regulations. And, and so you can't write a medical exemption unless somebody has had an allergic reaction to the first shot or somebody has, um, you know, ha- has uh, developed uh, myocarditis or pericarditis from the first shot. But otherwise, you can't. You can't do that. So the college has laid that out as kind of a, uh, a legal standard, but it's all based on government recommendations. So you look at those documents, they're not grounded in the law. And so the college is overstepping its boundaries, saying, doctors, you can't say anything contrary to what the government is recommending. 
And then you, you also can't write medical exemptions, even though it's just a government recommendation. And so Crystal has been hit on both counts. I mean, she, she's being accused of spreading misinformation and uh, she is also, uh, you know, has committed the crime of, of writing a medical exemption. So I say to the college, where is your authority? And the college just will not reply. And so we're taking them to court. And I, I think it's, it's manifestly clear that the college has no authority. And if you look at the documents they cite, they have no authority. And I just, when it comes to the, the public health documents, the Ontario documents regarding medical exemptions, the Ontario document says right at the top of the page, this is no substitute for advice you may take from your doctor or your lawyer. Okay, what could be more plain? It does not say you will do what the college will, will say. Say, talk to your doctor, talk to your lawyer. They are the ultimate authorities. And so where the college thinks it can turn that into uh, a standard of practice, so to speak, uh, mm -hmm. based on which they can prosecute doctors and hurt patients, as in the case of Crystal, that's, uh, it's mind boggling, really. It's, it's it, just it really is mind blowing because, and I think this is partly intentional on their part to make this so confusing and, and almost feeling like a backwards world that we just give up trying to understand it or we give up trying to pursue anything. And I've found myself in a similar situation trying to find the legal authority for why I cannot get on a plane in my own country right now. Right. And uh, the runaround from public health to Transport Canada um, to the COVID-19 emergency line back to the Justice Department, back to my MP's office. And it's just this loop of no legal framework or authority. Um, and we're seeing this across the board. So here we are in this completely blown out of proportion situation for a virus that has a 99% recovery rate-ish. Um, and and we're, we're hell-bent as a society on in, inoculating people for uh, with vaccines that are not stopping the transmission or or preventing people from from getting this virus um, and then effectively segregating uh, you know two classes of people and and we have this whole other kind of dark thing brewing here behind yeah. the scenes why do you think and and you may not even have the answer to this I don't even know if anyone does but why do you feel as though the college is striking down, with this size of a sledgehammer, knowing that they that there's little, if anything at all, that can legally support or justify them uh, in the position that they're taking. Well, and by the way, sir, this is going, I represent doctors all over the country, and this is going on with all the colleges in, in every province. Um, well, in, in Ontario, one of the reasons that it's happened is because doctors are normally represented by the, the Canadian Medical Protective Association. So doctors and the government pay into an insurance fund. And if you have a problem with the college, then you go talk to your CMPA lawyer at you know one of the appointed firms. There are only a, a couple in Toronto. And those uh, CMPA lawyers will not challenge the college on charter grounds, and they will not challenge the, the, the basic principles of administrative law or public law that constrain the authority of administrative bodies like the college. And in fact, if you press them on it, they will even admit that. And so 
Doctors historically in Ontario have been represented by lawyers who are committed to negotiating within the framework given to them by the caller. The definition of the law, the definition of the problem, and so on. And they try to negotiate you into a solution, which is ultimately, I believe, hurtful to, to, the, to the doctor because they're signed into undertakings and agreements that they should never agree to. So we have this historical problem in Ontario. And then a, a second aspect of this is uh, a, a larger one, which is the administrative state. I mean, government is so big today. There are so many different bodies and agencies exercising government authority. Uh, you know, ministers who are responsible for governing these, these different bodies and policing them don't have the time or the resources to do it. And often they're just not committed. Uh, the Minister of Health in Ontario can find out at any time of the day by picking up a phone what's going on with the college. But our government has not consistently uh, policed the college in Ontario. And, and I would say this has gone on in other um, uh, provinces as well. And so the government has kind of had a hands-off attitude. You're the experts. You can figure this out. You've got the expertise. You set your standards of practices, uh, standards of practice for doctors. And so there has just been kind of uh, uh, a deferral to the expertise of these colleges. And it's been very harmful because over time, the colleges have done what any organization would do, which is, you know, increase their power over time if they're not checked. But I want to say, I, I really identify with what you're saying, Sarah, because I have tried to figure out how Health Canada works. Okay. And uh, I can't figure it out because I've spent hours and hours on uh, government websites, tracing all kinds of statements, you know, uh, uh, papers, uh, flow charts. And I still can't figure out who made the decision in Health Canada to say that you can't prescribe ivermectin. And I think that that is probably an unlawful uh, statement that the, the government has made. Yeah. And, and so, um, so it's going on everywhere. And COVID and the so-called pandemic has given uh, government bodies all across the country an opportunity to engage in overreach. And that yeah. is their tendency to begin with. And so we're stuck in this terrible mess where people don't describe where their authority came from. And then we try to find out. And that turns out to be very murky and muddy. So this is a crisis for democracy. Yes. Oh, I, well put. And and right up my alley of, of what I'm very passionate about myself right now is the erosion of our democracy. And, and you mentioned uh, earlier, Dr. Crystal, about when, when you kind of start at a certain point, it's harder to come back as opposed to starting from a, a, a simpler place and then working your way forward. And, and this is the concern that so many Canadians have is it feels as though we have shifted into an extreme version of uh, government, an extreme version of healthcare, an extreme version of law and, and all of these other systems. And the fear is, can we come back from this once once if we if people like you aren't actively challenging these systems mm -hmm. right now, um, will we lose these autonomies? Will we lose these freedoms? Will our democracy continue to erode into a place where we really don't have any say anymore? And the the reference of the runaround when it comes to the government is of deep concern to me. And we're starting to see a little bit of it. Um, I've seen it in Ontario and I've seen a little bit of it out here in Alberta where we've kind of got this finger pointing going on now between the government and public health. 
mm-hmm. um, where our, our chief medical officer here uh, was uh, just on the stand here a couple of weeks ago um, mm-hmm. in a trial where she was very much saying I was just following the advice of the cabinet. Uh, And then in Ontario, we have the Ford government saying we're just following the doctors. Um, So we're like, well, well, which is it? And and where is this core information coming from that Mm -hmm. gives the justification for these orders and these measures that are being struck down? In my own attempt at trying to understand the federal travel mandates, and then following the work of um, the uh, Honorable Brian Peckford right now and uh, final remaining living signatory of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, I was alarmed at not being able to find anything that would provide legal justification other than this clause in the Aeronautics Act that says uh, the minister can enact uh, these temporary orders in the event of an emergency with the caveat that there has to be consultation with the appropriate departments based on what the emergency is, which would then kick things back to public health (laughs) and think, okay, if the, if the minister does have this legal authority to enact some sort of um, interim order in order to rectify a situation, then what is the documentation that's being used in order to uphold the decision to impl- to place an interim order. And it comes back to this abyss of public health and not right. being able to find what the heck this governing piece of information is that has so far been unsuccessfully located by anyone. Um, this is obviously of great concern, not only mm-hmm. from the standpoint of, of people who are in this battle and actively taking action and actively pushing back. But it's also a larger concern, in my opinion, for the the portion of the public who is not paying attention to this. Yeah. What has your experience been like in garnering any type of support from people who uh, may have at one point seen you as, you know, wearing a tinfoil hat as opposed to scrubs <laughs> has yeah. had any success in, in having conversation or is dialogue just completely shut down and, and not open at all to hearing your point of view on this? Um, so in the, in the beginning, uh, I found people were, I would say a mixed bag of, uh, openness and receptibility to my perspective and, and my concerns or, you know, as the doctor, I feel, there are certain things that I have to let my patients know. And um, so after a conversation with me, normally they would leave their, um, I would say by and large, um, understanding better uh, the pieces of the puzzle that they didn't know before. A lot of people were very open to that. And I don't know that it overall changed their decision-making or affected them really in any way other than they might've thought or questioned things. And really uh, that's where it all starts anyway. Um, And as things went along and more measures were put in place and there was harsher punishment and coercion and force, uh, people kind of backed away and uh, weren't really wanting to engage very much. And if I said anything, it would be misinterpreted or 
the conversation was shut down a lot. Um, but then there has been a window of time, I would say in the last maybe January-ish, um, where some of the people that I had previously heard very challenging statements from, you know, strong opinions about unvaccinated people and uh, from my perspective, quite abusive language and discriminatory um, perspectives. Um, they returned to my office for a follow-up visit or had a conversation with some people again, and um, they were asking me more questions. And it was a lot more uh, flexible and fluid and engaging than it had been. Um, so I find really kind of overall, there's been an ebb and flow to it. My my messages and and kind of information that I presented to people hasn't actually changed. Uh, it's only gotten stronger, in fact. Um, and I I do try to remind people uh, if they are kind of pushing back against me about the messages I was giving in the beginning and how they are very much the same. And can you say the same thing for public health or the leadership in our province or the hospital level or anywhere. And, and, and you can't, there's so many inconsistencies and, and bias perspectives, and they only talk about the benefits. They never talk about the consequences or the risks. Um, you know, and there's demonstrable factual evidence about these injections. And when you put that into perspective of how we're treating human beings, it's absolutely abhorrent from my perspective. I can't engage in it. And I'm respectful to all people, regardless of what their perspective is. But um, I, I don't continue on engaging if somebody's expressing really harsh, abusive sentiments towards other human beings that are unjustified and unnecessary and cause harm. And, you know, the college and what they've done to, it's not just me, there's at least um, eight, well, seven other physicians that are in some degree of a similar boat. Um, but there's 40 other physicians that are, you know, actively under investigation. And it's really so damaging to our healthcare infrastructure, um, the diversity of different perspectives and approaches. Um, and also, what are we teaching people? That if you ask questions, if you express your concerns to authority, that you're punished and shut down. And it's at every level. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it becomes kind of a bit of a tornado. And I feel like it is coming to a head. But it's going to take a lot of really big moments, I think. And so far, all of us that have been actively standing up for um, what truth is and where we find truth in science, science is only one tool that we use to try to understand the human condition, the human body, uh, the world we live in. But it's not everything. And if we shut down everything else and put science only at the top, it becomes an, a, a dogma and, and not a, a tool anymore. And That's so, yeah, and and so it's really, it's so much bigger than uh, just medicine or 
just healthcare. Yeah. But every every freedom that we have, and and to me as a doctor, I was trained to, uh, you know, at the highest value, place bodily autonomy and informed consent. And you know, I was also taught that really under no circumstances uh, do we make decisions for patients or force patients into medical treatments. And I've you know, I know our system is not perfect, but I have only in my eight years of independent practice um, seen that you experienced that like twice, probably, where there's a doctor that's more forceful or, um, you know, disagrees with what my palliative approach was and went and talked to the patient. And so, but now it is, um, it's expected that we remove patients' own ability to make choices about their body. And we don't provide fully informed consent because how can we? We don't know enough about the long-term side effects or adverse events. Um, we are dismissing and we're not looking for any of the uh, immediate short-term or medium-term ones. You know, we're, we're not doing... Um, anyone, any good service by dismissing and, and denying these things and, and being silent or scared to speak up about them. And, and this is exactly the environment that's been created, right? Is one where people yes. are fearful to speak up or people are fearful to disagree or people are fearful um, to challenge something because the consequences are made so public and so fierce and so heavy that it's obvious that we are being trained to comply. So when it comes to the, the trust and the erosion of the trust in the public health system, the fear in the conversations that I have with so many Canadians these days is well, if all of the doctors who really are acting on the best interest in the best interest of their patients are actively being removed from the system, then who are we left with that we can feel safe in advocating for what is good and right for us as an individual if it happens to be different than this mass public directive blanket approach mm-hmm. of healthcare? And that's very, very scary and very, very real for a lot of people right now, especially for the group of Canadians who are not vaccinated, um, because there's a there's a fear there that either we won't be treated fairly uh, or we won't be treated at all uh, or we we won't know which doctor we can or cannot have open dialogue with um, without fear of you know, being reprimanded or, or chastised or ridiculed or shamed for thinking the things we're thinking or having the questions that we have. And that's a really sad state of affairs to be, uh, especially in a country like Canada, where I I definitely couldn't have predicted um, having to face these types of issues here, but here we are. Yes. Um, and this choice, the choice has been yeah. taken. Yeah, and I might add with that, Sarah. I mean, the 
the whole system, this public health response has been set up. There has been gaming uh, going on with this. There have been uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, practice runs for a pandemic that have been going on in North America since 1999. Robert F. Kennedy details this very nicely in his new book, uh, The Real Dr. Fauci. And, and, and so the whole, uh, uh, the whole system of, uh, that, that responds to uh, a, a so-called emergency, in this case, a pandemic, is based upon control measures without any opportunity for questioning authority or, or critical thinking, or it, it, it's just set up so that A becomes B becomes C, and, and it just, uh, authority will be exercised, control is the, uh, is the goal. And, um, and, and then we've got just the greater problem that I mentioned, which is that our institutions are not transparent enough, they are not accountable <laughs> enough to withstand this kind of attack. Uh, through the public health system. And, and so, you know, the only way that we're going to solve this situation going forward is to uh, have new rules regarding transparency and accountability with the colleges, with our governments, with all kinds of administrative bodies, and clarify what people's rights are. So when they go on the internet, they can find out. But right now, government doesn't want you to know. And that's yeah. got to send chills up everybody's spine, no matter what side of the fence you're on with vaccines or lockdowns that concerns me that not all Canadians are raising a red flag with that one thing alone of why there is so much authority here and why there is basically close to zero autonomy on, on behalf of the, the individual citizen, the individual patient um, or that removal of choice from their life. And, and, you know, there's a lot of dialogue that says, oh, you have a choice to get vaccinated or not. It, it's 100% no longer a choice. It was a choice when they were handing out suckers and hot dogs and ice cream cones and people could go get and put post a picture of their Band-Aid right. and they made a choice to go get vaccinated. And I said, well, good for you. I'm happy that you, you feel better now. It, it stopped being a choice for people when the there were there were things that were being taken away um as a result of that choice you then had to choose between your integrity your belief systems and your freedoms um and for many these conversations that so many canadians desperately wanted to be able to have with their healthcare provider around understanding the risks involved with taking um, an, an emergency authorized vaccination, which I think even the definition of vaccination could even be challenged on this as well. Um, it was no longer safe to even ask questions, let alone make a decision to not receive um, the injection. So this is now the current state of our healthcare system in Canada, province to province, um, where do we go from here as citizens who who know that what's happening right now is wrong and we see what's happening uh, with doctors like yourself, Dr. Crystal, and our heads are exploding back here, feeling very helpless in what we can do to support you or to um, you know use our voices to leverage our politicians. Um, maybe uh, Michael, this is a question for you. What? can the general public be doing right now? Cause I know that there's going to be listeners listening to this. Their hair's going to be on fire listening to this thinking like, I got to do something. 
Um, What is your best recommended course of action for the everyday citizen right now? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a really tough question because uh, not everybody can bring a legal action. It's expensive. You can get together and, uh, you know, as a group, you can bring something like a quasi-class action where everybody throws in a couple of thousand bucks and you hire a lawyer. And if you get a large enough group, you can proceed against the government. So I think you should keep that option on the table. But, uh, you know, you have to build awareness on a political level because it's not just uh, this this problem has to be attacked on many different levels. We're attacking it on the level of media today. It has to be done in the courts. It has to be done through politics. It has to be done in your neighborhood, you know, uh, talking to your friends. And, and that's one of the biggest problems is how to talk to your friends. I mean, we've probably all lost friends. I've lost a lot of friends who don't like my point of view, and I, I've made no effort to, to impose it on uh, but I'm labeled an anti-vaxxer and I'm way out there and aligning myself with the wrong people. So I've had to make new friends. Um, th- the thing is, how do we get out of this unless we go back to those people who have rejected us for our views and say, uh, you know, can't you give me a fair listen on this? Yeah. And, and so it, it, it's really, there's a guy in the UK named David Cheryl uh, Ambu. Uh, and he's got a, uh, a website, I believe, uh, called uh, FindingPeople.net. Um, uh, I'm sorry if I've got that, uh, that name wrong. But he, has, uh, he presented at the World Council for Health a number of weeks ago uh, a strategy for talking to people who uh, don't want to hear your message. And, you know, this really needs to be in the hands of communication experts and people yeah. who know how you can appeal to people who just don't want to hear the truth. And so uh, I would ask people to check out his site because he's got some very good recommendations. It's a little bit out of my domain, but he's got some That's amazing advice advice, though, because that is the number one issue is, you know, I think the, the, the freedom convoy that happened in Canada helped many of us realize that we weren't crazy in our thought process and how we were seeing things. Um, So now we, we very much know that there's a large number of us who are having a lot of shared concerns about what's happening right now. Uh, and, and to your point, Michael, the next step is how do we, how do we bridge this gap now uh, to help enable folks to be more open to hearing our points of view, especially um, for medical professionals as yourself, because I'm sure um, that there are doctors out there still um, who are choking on their words. At least I, I want to believe that with every cell in my body, that there are doctors that are in the system right now that know that something isn't right and are maybe too fearful, um, you know, to obviously have their license suspended. I mean, you're living proof of what happens if they decide to push back. So from, from your standpoint, if there's doctors listening to this episode, um, what would be uh, the advice to them in, if, they're, if they want to say something, if, if they're feeling unsafe or if they're feeling concerned about what they're witnessing? So um, by and large, I think what we do often is we take this political correctness and we kind of apply that lens and, and we don't, we want to be accepted all the time. And this is part of human nature. Um, but you know, it, it's at the, the greater detriment if we continue to do that. So instead of, you know, trying to not call things what they are, like bullying, 
So name calling, blaming, shaming, uh, pointing fingers at innocent people, um, you know, as being uh, the reason that this is happening or the reason that this is continuing is a naive and narrow perspective that is not founded in any kind of solid uh, evidence from any spectrum. And to focus on how you treat people, because how we how we treat people in a crisis tells a lot about our character. And, you know, we're here on this earth to have an experience. I've chosen part of my experience to help people and to serve um, the public. And I did not do that in, you know, with the conditions that I had to do it by harming them. Um, so if you see harm, call it what it is, be aware of it um, and express concerns to people that you might be more trusting in to see if you can find some guidance on how to approach it. Or, and if, if you think that you're going to be spared in all of this, you're not. Uh, I'm a living example, I think, of that. And that was, the, I think, the purpose that the college has gone to these extremes is to use me and other physicians like me uh, as an example. And you don't want to be like you know, Dr. Crystal and don't do this. And, but at some point you have to accept that if you continue along in a system that is harming people, it's going to destroy you as well. Um, so be true to yourself and, and the values and, and the ethics that got you into medicine and the reasons why you're here to help people and help people in the most compassionate and ethical way. That's our job. Um, it's never my job to force someone to take a medical treatment. It's never my job to judge someone um, or be biased. Um, and I actively choose that behavior and actions with my patients. So um, reflective practice is really important in self-introspection. Um, and, and if you can start somewhere, just start with being present and aware of your patient and what their concerns are and, you know, what would you do previous to this? Because it shouldn't really be different than right now. That's uh, a then. brilliant question to, to ask oneself, whether you're a medical professional or not, if you, if you can find it within yourself to remove what we have been pumped over the last two years and ask ourselves if the same situation that I'm feeling agitated by or concerned about today were to present itself to me without having this other knowledge or directive placed in front of me, how would I, as the individual, respond to this? And this is my my plea for everyone who is listening right now. If if um, you know something is wrong and, and you're hesitant to speak up. You just gave brilliant um, words of wisdom there for medical professionals, Dr. Crystal, um, for anyone who is still on the fence of what do I do? Do I say something? Recognizing yeah. that if we don't intervene, um, this system is in perpetual motion forward. Yeah. Uh, and it's up to people to stick a stick in the spokes to put the brakes on for a second so we can have 
very honest dialogue about what is occurring right now in our nation um, and specifically in our healthcare system. And Michael, you you referenced earlier about our political scene, uh, and that's where where my expertise has has come into play is my knowledge of how our federal government operates um, provincially as well. How important is it, in your opinion, um, for our our politicians to start getting involved in this if they haven't already? Um, is it futile for them to get involved? Or are they just kind of they're just politicians and they this is what they do? Or or do we need them on our side right now in order to begin to enact new legislation to put measures in place to not just stop this from happening, but to ensure that we have safeguards put in place for the future? Um, to protect us from this type of situation happening from happening again. Yeah, we definitely need people. We need new political leadership uh, mm-hmm. to make this happen. And unfortunately, the only person, the only politician in the country, I mean, there are a few, uh, but the only politician who's a leader who has been speaking about this with absolute honesty and my opinion is Max Bernier. And, and um, you know, others are not uh, really, uh, Randy Hillier is another example there, there are small and then look what policies. happened to Randy, right? right? All of a sudden, he got thrown into jail. So there's another example of someone having a big voice and taking big action and being made, uh, you know, a, a public. And, and as you point out, Brian Peckford, one of uh, uh, the fathers of our new constitution, um, you, you know, is is got some extremely valuable insights to share with the courts and with politicians. And uh, he, he is not being taken as seriously as he should be. No. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a very discouraging situation in that respect. But one of the fundamental problems here is that we do not have a media checking government and publishing alternative points of view and alternative stories, which is why uh, your program is so important. So we, we can reach some people. But as you know, I mean, the, the, the Canadian media has been bought off by the government. Mm-hmm. First with a $600 million uh, grant. And then, uh, you know, post-election, another $400 million to the CBC alone. Yes. So we're up around a billion and counting. And so we have a bot media, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which, which destroys the, uh, the very opposition between media and government that makes it possible for citizens to make responsible decisions. Yeah. And so it's just as important that we see changes in media as we see changes in government. Yes. Um, uh, but Even though I, right I, now the government is trying to put forth new legislation to be able to control independent media uh, and social media even more, which is kind of another layer of what on earth is even going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is our way to be able to have a voice is, is through these independent channels, whether it's podcasts, social media, even though we have to basically speak in code on social media these days in order to like send our, our messages to be like, watch right. out for this one, right. but I'm going right. to sign it and use symbols so that you know what I'm talking about. Um, but their bill, bill C-18 was just introduced by the liberals um, to uh, strike down even more on independent journalism. Uh, bill C-11 is making its way through the house um, for a second round. Uh, so it's, it's frightening. And, and this is where, uh, I think everybody listening needs to recognize that there there isn't going to be time a couple of years from now to mm-hmm. speak about this um, because we may not have the means to be able to do so. Uh, so it's now that we have to find the courage. 
You know, I totally agree. And, you know, this is going on in so many countries. I was looking at a statement made by the Department of Homeland Security a couple of months ago. And the statement was anybody um, who speaks out in a way to create distrust for government can can be put under surveillance. Well, that's the whole function of the First Amendment and the guarantee of freedom of speech is to sow distrust with government, to question government, to criticize government. Distrust is necessary for the democratic system to function. And here, yeah, in Canada, we have the Trudeau uh, government trying to shut that down. And I certainly agree with you. Like, unless we make a stand now, um, we we are not going to recover from this. This is a turning point in history. We need a new and second enlightenment. Yes, uh, we do. About how government operates and how we relate to it. And unless we uh, enact some fundamental reforms coming out of this, first of all, we got to win the battle uh, for, you know, uh, that we're in right now. But but coming out of this, unless there is fundamental uh, institutional reform, uh, we're going to see more of the same in the future. But I wish people would take their their right to speak out uh, with the utmost seriousness. Yes, because it's one of those things we if, if we were born in Canada or we came to Canada for um, freedom. We were we were born into it, having the ability to use our voices, and I, I think that's a dangerous uh, perception out there that that will always have that, and and we fail as a as a nation to recognize that we will only get to keep that if we fight for it and we keep it alive, um, because the government won't do that for us, and they're certainly showing us very clear evidence of that now. Um, where can we keep up with? Um, your case? Is this something that the public can access if they want to follow along with, or where can people get more information? Yeah, we do have a website, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and we have press releases and updates about cases there. I don't have a website. I've never had a website for my my business or my office. I'm personally on Instagram, and I really don't use social media very much. Um, so I, I think probably the Justice Center website would be the best. Clearly, the legal costs are quite extensive. Um, and so donations to Justice Center to help with that would be amazing. Um, and we can provide the website to make donations there. And certainly, um, you know, if there when there is an update, we, it will be posted on on the Justice Center's website in terms of a announcement. And we're hoping that that will happen um, because part of our approach, I think, is a bit different. Um, and in, in the college's action to suspend my license, there's been enormous harm caused to my patients. And um, we collected uh, 70 patient affidavits on the the variation and the degree of harm that has been caused from their decision. And we're including that in our submissions and part of our legal approach, because that's where I don't think the college has really considered their, you know, the consequences of their actions. And I think every single person, no matter if you're a leader in leadership or in an institution or you're an individual, the accountability lies within you for the decisions that you make. And so, you know, the hospital can point the finger at the government, but the government saying, oh, no, no, we didn't make that. 
whoever made those decisions needs to be held accountable because they made those decisions. They chose them for whatever reason. You can say I was just following, but you followed them. You chose to follow them against your better judgment. And that falls on you then. So we have to hold people accountable at all levels, personally, professionally, employment wise, socially, all around the board. Um, and use real language and what things actually are bullying or abusive of authority or, or whatever. And really once we start doing that, we're acting very honestly and transparently and, uh, lots of good things flow from there. Yeah. Do you have hope that this is going to turn out in your favor? I do. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, completely, uh, floating in the clouds thinking that, you know, we're putting this motion forward and it's all going to end up um, just how I want it. I, I don't know that that's really a high possibility. Um, but we're putting our absolute best foot forward in the most real, authentic and humanistic way possible to express to a judge who's going to have to, with his his or her own eyes and ears and mind, wrap their head around the consequences of the decision on a small community that's already struggling on all of those people. And so the college, you know, made their decision, but they had other options. And um, hopefully a judge will see that this was not the right decision and, um, and I'm, I'm very, you know, I have faith. I have to have faith in the goodness of people in the world that we live in. And I don't see how someone can turn a blind eye to what we're putting forward. I, I share the same faith as you. I, I believe that it, it may continue to get darker before it gets better. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm of the firm belief uh, that this will end up working out in a right and just way. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, are there enough of us right now? And are we loud enough right now? And are we seizing every opportunity we can right now, uh, to be able to, um, make this right for so many reasons, so much, um, needless suffering, so much harm that has been caused, um, that could have been avoided, uh, had doctors like you been given more autonomy to be able to just do your jobs and work with your patients. So I, I thank you deeply for um, the sacrifice that you chose to make. As, as you mentioned earlier, um, you chose not to simply say, I'm just doing what I'm told as a doctor. I'm just following the directive that's coming down from public health or the college or wherever it's coming from. You made a choice to not do that. Um, and it was an important one because we need more doctors um, like you to be pushing back on this right now for a number of reasons, but uh, more importantly right now to restore any inkling of trust left in our public health system, because I fear uh, how many people very much like myself will now avoid um, seeking health care as a result of not feeling like we're safe. Uh, in the hands of of doctors, simply because we we don't know if they will advocate for us um, over the uh, orders that they've been given. So, lots of work to be done. Um, but thank you, and thank you both for joining me here today. 
Uh, we will get this out to wherever the heck we can get it out. Uh, and we'll also link up uh, the uh, Justice website in the show notes. So if you're listening, uh, you can head to the show notes of this episode, give that link a click. Uh, and I imagine the, are the donations also linked up there as well as at the best place if people want to donate? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're supported by over 15,000 people across the country and a small number of foundations. And uh, so if people... Uh, believe in what we're trying to do, please consider donating a donation of any size is always welcome. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for joining me here today. Thank you so much, Sarah. Sarah. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you need support to grow or start your business online, be sure to connect with me at www.businesswithsarah.com forward slash connect or send us an email at team at businesswithsarah.com. If you love this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and leave a five-star rating on your favorite platform to help me reach more listeners. Until our next chat, be courageous and take some action. Oh,